This week on Myths and Legends, we're back in the world of Robin Hood as the famous outlaw puts together his team of merry men, and you'll learn how outlaws absolutely love piggyback rides. The creature this week is that new coat that you just can't take off, not because of how cool it looks, but because it's eating you. This is Myths and Legends, episode 168, Team of Rivals. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. This week's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Turn your great idea into a reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind. With beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can make a beautiful website yourself. And if you get stuck, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help. Head over to squarespace.com myths for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MYTHS to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Okay, so we're back in the Robin Hood stories. First off, you don't need to have heard the previous Robin Hood stuff. All the Robin Hood stories we've done so far have been almost exclusively focused on Robin Hood. I feel like it would have been too hard a digression to stop his narrative to tell the origin stories of his fellow outlaws, no matter how weird and interesting they are. So that's what we're going to do today, or simultaneously before and after the previous Robin Hood episodes, as we go back in time to tell how he met some of the biggest names, and we'll catch back up to our running story by the end of today, and we'll have all the pieces in place. Basically, all you need to know is that there's an outlaw in 12th century Britain named Robin Hood. He lives in Sherwood Forest and terrorizes the Sheriff of Nottingham. In the earliest tales, he's less of a noble outlaw and more of a straight-up murderer and bandit, though he does eventually reform to the guy who steals from the rich and gives to the poor. Arthur Bland shot the first deer of the morning. The buck was quick, but Arthur was quicker. He was a fighter, a hunter. Arthur Bland was actually a tanner in Nottingham, you know, someone who turned skin to leather, but he hated that. He hated it so much that he risked angering the authorities to kill more than his share of the king's deer. He actually just escaped two men trying to enforce this ridiculous law. What right did the king, who had never been in this land, have to say that all the deer were his? It was something that Arthur loved doing, and he'd rather die than give it up. And he might get that chance, because someone had followed him to the kill. As Arthur cut the buck's throat to put him out of his misery, he turned to look to the bushes. Whoever was there could come out. The guy, who appeared to be nearly seven feet tall, stepped out, a quarterstaff in his own hand. He said that he was one of the king's foresters. He and his men cared for the deer in this forest, and the hunter here was hunting without permission. He would need to pay. Whoa, 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 what was the hunter doing? Arthur, knowing that he wouldn't be given a second warning in the same day, charged the stranger. Little John, one of Robin Hood's men, wasn't technically lying when he said he and his men cared for this forest. Sherwood Forest was their home, mostly. You see, Little John had just returned from... Uh, Something of a sabbatical. 
Dreading yet another lean winter in Sherwood Forest, Little John had showed up in Nottingham and ingratiated himself with the sheriff's steward. He offered a fight on behalf of the sheriff, but knowing that Robin and his men were laying low for the winter, figured it was a pretty safe bet that he wouldn't have to. So Little John spent the six months between October and April laying around eating whatever he wanted and seeing how much he could drink before he fell asleep. As it turns out, it was a lot. Because his stay in the sheriff's castle ended with him sword fighting the cook before they shared two flagons of beer and the cook, who realized that he would be fired for letting Little John raid the food stores, decided to defect to the forest. So when Dad Bod Little John met Arthur Bland, he was not at the top of his game. Even more so because, after wintering on the sheriff's tab, he wasn't ready to give up the good life and had blown all the money he had been given for errands on an inn and alcohol last night. He certainly had no business threatening the lean and cornered hunter. He blocked the first couple of blows from Arthur's quarterstaff, but those were the last ones that he blocked. Hold, Little John screamed to his adversary. Would you strike a man when he is down? Arthur the Tanner thought about it. Yes, yes he would. He took his quarterstaff and smacked John a couple more times in the face. I really gotta stop you there, Arthur heard from the trees. A man in a Lincoln green cloak stepped out. He tipped his hat to Arthur. Robin, Little John set up. Was that Robin? He was wiping the blood from his eyes. I don't know. Is this the little John that abandoned us for six months before skipping running errands to spend all of our money on food and alcohol? Little John paused. Uh, That sounded like a different guy. Mm Mm-hmm, Robin said and turned to Arthur. As much as it would solve some problems for Robin, he couldn't let Arthur Bland kill little John. Little John still had to pay back the cloak money spent on booze. Little John groaned. Arthur looked to the trees all around him. Sherwood Forest, Little John, Robin. He said if he knew who Little John really was, he never would have attacked. John said that he was with the king, and Arthur already ran into them this morning. Robin helped Little John to his feet. Huh, he understood. No blood, no foul. I literally have blood all over my face, Little John reminded his leader. And what are you doing, Robin said, ignoring Little John's remark and instead focusing on Arthur Bland, who was following them. I'm joining your band of outlaws, Arthur said. Hunting, fishing, living off the land, it's all I want. It's all I've ever wanted. You can always, you know, fight to keep me from following you, but little John's in no condition, so it would just be me and you, and I will do anything to keep from going back to that life. So you better plan on killing me. Robin looked him up and down. Nope, not worth it. They could always use another hunter, too. He shook Arthur's hand. Welcome aboard. He'd get a Lincoln green cloak and an orientation packet when they made it back to the hideout. In a castle far away from Sherwood Forest, the steward was at it again. Will Gamwell's father, the local lord, had taken on the steward as a kindness to an old friend after the man's death. The steward had opinions, opinions that he didn't mind sharing with the Lord and his son, with his betters, as Will Gamwell saw it. 
He was sharing one such opinion right now. Will, the young lordling, didn't even know what the steward was saying, but he had enough of the way the old man talked to his father. As Will marched up to the old steward, he was annoyed that he was the one doing this. He had talked to his father countless times about the steward's insolence, about how he didn't get to talk to a noble the way he did. But Will's father only chuckled, said something about the best decisions being the ones that were thought out, and that you couldn't really think about things without opposition. Besides, the difference between noble and commoner, master and servant, weren't as steadfast as Will believed. We'll never know what pushed Will beyond silent contempt to openly uh, correcting the steward. But he approached without warning, stood in the steward's face, and boxed the old man's ear. Or so he thought. Either he misjudged his own strength, or the steward's frailty, because what would only be a violent, yet minor correction, had the effect of a full-on sucker punch to the side of the head. Will was surprised when the old man dropped to the ground like a sack of potatoes, but decided to go with it. And that's the last time you'll speak to my father like that, steward, Will said, turning to his father with a wink. His father was out of his chair, though, and when Will turned, the Lord was there, pushing him aside. What do you have to say for yourself, steward? Maybe start at, like, I don't know, abject remorse and build from there. Hmm, steward? Steward? Will's father rose, but the steward did not. The old man was dead, and Will had killed him. Will begged his father. He said he was sorry. It was an accident. The Lord was grave. He asked how he was supposed to uphold and enforce the law, and yet allow his own child to murder a man in his presence. He said Will had 30 minutes to gather everything he needed and get out. Will shook his head. What? For how long? Will's father didn't flinch. Forever. That name he was so adamant about honoring, it wasn't his anymore. The Lord suggested changing it, because it would only attract the king's men from now on. The only honor it would give him was a swift beheading. Will Gamwell threw himself to the floor. Please, where would he go? What would he do? His father only looked down at him. 29 minutes. A few weeks later, Will's eyes flitted around the forest. He was being watched. His hand rested on his sword. He had yanked it off a guard as he rushed from his father's room. He ran to his own and jammed as many clothes as he could into a pack before sprinting from the city. At 30 minutes, he was outside the gate. And by the time the alarms went up, he was already in the forest. That forest wasn't this forest, though. This was Sherwood Forest. And Will was right. He was being watched. Arthur Bland peeked from the trees beside another wanted man. Little John, they spotted a target. I mean, the guy out there, was he asking to be robbed? Because coming into Sherwood Forest in his fancy court clothes, the 12th century equivalent of a tuxedo, with your full purse bouncing at your side, that's how you get robbed. It was Robin's turn, so the pair watched him step from the trees with a smile and confront the young man. For the rest of Robin's life, the outlaw would say it was a draw. Arthur and John would agree with him. Though... Draws usually don't end with one guy on the ground and the other wailing on his ribs with a club. 
Arthur cut Will's purse from his side, and John put a knife to his throat when they saw enough. And then Will... smiled? Uncle Robin? Is that you? Robin painfully rose to his elbows. Wait, Will? Will Gamwell helped his uncle, Robin, to his feet. He said he had been practicing what Robin taught him. What was it, eight years ago now? He had always known Robin wasn't dead. Robin barely managed not to scream at the pain in his ribs when his nephew embraced him. She's safe, Will said, as Robin opened his mouth to ask about his older sister. She had been married off young to a powerful lord, a man too powerful for even the sheriff to cross. She mourned Robin when she mourned the rest of her family. She didn't hear the whispers that came from Sherwood Forest. But Will did. He had been exiled from his father's house for the accidental death of a steward. He was an outlaw now too, and he wanted to join his uncle. Robin nodded. Two things. One, they would need to change his name. The name Will Gamwell carried too much heat right now. Robin's eyes fell on Will's scarlet cloak. Scarlet. He'd go by Will Scarlet now. Will nodded his head. Yeah, that's actually way cooler. Okay, what was the second thing? Robin rubbed his ribs. Don't tell anyone about this. Ever. The only reason Will beat Robin Hood was because Will was trained by Robin Hood. I mean, we kind of get beaten all the time, Little John observed. Arthur nodded. Robin drew his finger across his neck. What? It's like a recruitment strategy. That's why our gang's so big. John threw up his hands. Look, I'm just trying to make the kid feel special, okay? Robin rejoined. Well, I didn't know that, John said and stormed off. It's called leadership, Robin yelled back. All right, let's go. And sneak attack, the miller's son yelled as he gripped two handfuls of flour and threw them in the faces of the bandits. Robin was about to correct the young man, saying that it's not a sneak attack if you yell sneak attack, but the attack was just sneaky enough that the flower filled Robin's mouth and clumped in his eyes. As we know, the Robin Hood narrative moves from Robin Hood being just a generic cutthroat and a robber to him having ideals, like stealing from the cruel rich and giving to the poor. There are a lot of reasons for this, not the least of which being that it's hard to idealize someone who's just a murderer and a thief. But it also seems like he's also kind of bad at this and just moved to soft targets like pompous nobles and gluttonous priests because they were way easier to rob than normal people fighting to survive. Case in point, Robin Hood, Little John, Arthur Bland, and Will Scarlet were out to rob people. So of course they were sitting in the shade having a singing competition. Sherwood Idol was interrupted by an actual person to rob, excusing himself as he walked through. As the man, who went by the name of Much, walked past, Robin realized that, hey, we should rob him. So the force surrounded Much and asked, politely, for every penny Much had. Much showed his empty pockets, complete with like a moth fluttering out. He was a medieval peasant. Come on. That's when Robin's eyes lighted on the sack of flour. Ah, that's where it was hidden. Arthur, empty the sack of flour on the ground. Much stepped in between the outlaws and the flour. Okay, 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 look. That's his livelihood. They got him. The money was in the flour. If they let him get it out and not spoil good flour, he would give it to them. 
And that's how we opened up with the not-so-sneaky sneak attack. Robin's band waylaid not by weapons or threats, but by flour. Much didn't run initially, but continued to throw flour in the faces of the outlaws until their beards were white and their words nothing but dust on the wind. Then he picked up Robin's staff and really went to work. It was only when the presumably more competent members of Robin Hood's band heard the screams of their leader from far off and put a knife to Much's throat that the miller's son relented and put up his hands, learning that the robber whose ribs he was rapping on was Robin Hood, whose reputation caused Much to recoil. He had no idea he was so sorry. Also, Robin Hood was kind of a jerk for robbing common people. When Robin ceased heaving flour from a dusty throat, he accepted Much's hand, and the help rising, he patted Much on the back. This was the fiercest miller he had ever seen. He turned to Much. Would Much like to lead the life of a dusty mill and live free in the forest? Having just viciously owned Robin and his not-so-merry men, you have to consider, why did Much the Miller's son, as he's known, leave the relative safety and comfort of his mill to join Robin's crew? I mean, maybe life in the forest was appealing, but honestly, it was probably more likely that, like Arthur, he was born into a job he didn't really care for, and trapped in a short and brutal life as a medieval peasant. It may be that if life was going to be nasty and short anyway, he might as well live it on his own terms free and in control of his own fate in the forest, taking what he needed, then watch it tick away in a job he hated. And he was mostly right, too. With Robin's crew, he went on some adventures. He ended up in London with Little John, and he met the king, as we talked about on the last Robin Hood episodes. But the days of the crew doing whatever they wanted was about to end, because this is the point in our story where Robin has a crisis of conscience, and not only decides to exclusively rob from the rich, but also to give to the poor. After the break, we'll catch up with the guys as they try out their new ideals. But that will be right after this. You know what's difficult about having fewer people to steal from? Will asked Robin, who was draped over a thick tree branch just off the road. I don't know, there are fewer people to steal from, Robin replied, not diverting his gaze from the leaves he had been staring at for nearly two hours. It was day six of nothing but the meat that Arthur had shot in the forest. They all weren't feeling too great. I, I know how you're all wanting to be different and rob the people that are robbing the people and all that, but... Ugh, are you sure you don't want to go back to robbing just anyone who walks through the forest? Will asked, before daring to nibble on the meat he had brought. And there were people to rob. There were farmers and merchants and woodcutters and peasants and millers and everyone that they used to rob, but didn't now. The road, however, was wanting of fat abbots or rich landowners. Then they heard the singing. Far off down the road, a minstrel was singing. Well, crying. It was actually mostly crying with some a-melodic notes thrown in there. John looked at Robin. I mean, wandering minstrel was the closest they got to a noble all day. If he didn't have money, he probably knew stuff, so... Dinner? Robin shrugged. Sure. Now, Robin and his merry men didn't take from the poor anymore, but they did have loopholes. One of which was that they would invite some wealthy-looking person to dinner. 
and then asked them to split the bill on a dinner they were invited to in the hideout. The implication being, well, if they didn't helpfully contribute, that it would not go well for them. The outlaws probably justified it because they were offering goods in exchange for cash, but really it's just robbery with extra steps. When the fully armed guys surround you in the medieval forest, suggesting that you go to dinner with them, I guess you do it. I mean, don't do it in real life. Don't go to a second location, seriously. But most people went with Robin. It might have been a smile and magnetic personality, or it could have been all the arrows and the other sharp things that hung off of him. Who's to say? Robin threw an arm around the weeping minstrel, a man by the name of Alan Adale, who we'll just call Alan, and led him back to camp. When they arrived, they found venison, fowl, and rabbits. Arthur Bland had been busy. It wasn't bread or wine or baked goods or anything like that, but it was enough for a guest. But Robin Hood noticed Alan wasn't touching his food that he was about to pay good money for. All right, champ, what's up? Alan, of course, was in love. It all started when a young noblewoman named Ellen, yes, Alan and Ellen, fun for podcasters, anyway, it started one day when Alan saw Ellen admiring him as he played. So he did what any nice guy would do. Go up and introduce himself? Uh, no, not that. Sent her a nice note with his contact info, respectfully leaving the ball in her court. Still no. Ceaselessly watch her father's house for the moment she left and then sneak up on her in the forest and confess his love when she was alone without help? You betcha. She said that, yes, she did love the stranger too and, mm-hmm, she would swear to be true to him forever. Could she go home now, please? When he walked her home, though, her father saw them and forbade Alan and Ellen from ever seeing each other again. Yes, this Alan and Ellen rebellion near his dwelling was overwhelming. To show how serious he was, days later, Ellen was pledged to be married to kind of an older knight, like 40-ish years older than her, Sir Stephen of Trent. They would marry in a week's time. Uh, bummer that she doesn't want anything to do with you, Will Scarlet said after a long silence. The rest of the table looked at him. What? Will asked, picking a wing clean and reaching for another. Oh, I'm sorry, did she come looking for you? Professor Love? Say she didn't want to marry Sir Stephen? No? Okay, get over it. Alan stood. After a couple hours of stalking her in the forest, he knew Ellen better than anyone in the world. If she marries Sir Stephen, her heart will break and she will die. He buried his crying eyes in his hands. He couldn't say any more. Well, I'm convinced, Robin said. What, you are? Will Scarlet asked. Robin nodded. Yep. They wouldn't stand in the way of love, and they wouldn't let a young woman die. In two days' time, Alan and Ellen would be married. Okay, look, boss, I love that you love a good caper, but we haven't had a solid haul in a while, and we're all getting restless, Will said, but met the angry eyes of little John. Robin was the boss here, and if he wanted to go on a caper, they were going on a caper no matter how out of the way or costly it was. Robin nodded. Thanks, John. First up, they could get Ellen no problem, but they couldn't be married without a clergyman, and Robin knew just the one.
a couple dozen miles away, near the dwelling of the hermit friar. Little John squinted as he peered through the leaves. What's happening? I can't see anything, Will whispered. Did Robin make contact with the friar? Little John cocked his head, huh? That can't be right. Will piped in. What can't be right? What was Robin doing? Cutting off his head, fighting, losing like he does most of the time? That's when Robin's crew heard the noises coming through the trees. They had traveled far to find the clergyman, a curtailed friar by the name of Tuck, and Robin had gone in alone. Now, through the trees, they heard the sinister sounds of giddy laughter, splashing and horsey sounds. Uh, it's piggyback rides, said Little John. Friar Tuck was as dangerous as he was lazy. We're not told what led Tuck to the friar's life, but we do know that it was not for him. The guy was a famous glutton, feasting and drinking any chance he could get. Aside from his appetites, he couldn't stand to be under authority, something that's pretty endemic to being a friar. I mean, even on a spiritual level, you're under the authority of God. Anyway, when Friar Tuck and his bosses at the church realized that he just wasn't a good fit for the position, they parted amicably when the church publicly shamed him and expelled him from the order. So now he had his own little hermitage across the stream and his daily religious observances, consisting mainly of hanging out by the stream drinking and singing to himself. And that's the scene onto which Robin stumbled. The friar looked up at the young man with the sword and shield strapped to his Lincoln green cloak and nodded. How's it going? Robin said that he was out looking for a friar at a hermitage across the river. Did the obvious friar happen to know if the friar was in the hermitage across the river? Tuck shrugged. He didn't know. The young man should go and check. Robin looked at the river and, uh, water? Tuck took another drink. Yep, rivers were like that. Robin paused. It's just that he wasn't dressed for this. Might be a weird ask, but the friar, with him being a charitable man of God and all, you want me to carry you across the stream? Would you? Thanks, Robin said, hiking up his own cloak. It took a little more convincing, but soon they were on the other side of the river. Moments later, Robin returned. Huh, the friar wasn't home. The friar, Friar Tuck, replied that, ah, oh, bummer. Hey, so Robin wasn't just like some bandit, right? Robin shrugged. I mean, who's to say? Tuck said that to prove he was an honorable young man, the friar now needed Robin to carry him across the river. I mean, fair is fair, right? Besides, the friar had all these ailments and such that if he got wet again, they would flare up and they would interrupt his religious devotions for months to come. The honorable young man didn't want that, did he? Robin sighed and hiked up his own clothes, allowing the not small friar on his back. It said that the friar relished the ride and dug his heels into Robin's side, spurring the outlaw on and laughing. Robin, for his part, showed how honorable he was when he, quote, softly reached up and felt around the friar's robe. When the apparently very dexterous Robin found the friar's sword belt, he loosened it to the point that, when he dropped Tuck off on the opposite side of the river, the sword belt stayed with Robin. The friar pursed his lips when he saw Robin standing there with not one, but two swords 
the friar threw up his hands. Robin had him. If Robin gave him back his sword, then he wouldn't draw it against the young man save in self-defense. On his word, Robin held out the sword and said he knew this man was the friar he was looking for. Tuck nodded. Wow, so quick too. He snatched the sword from Robin's hand and, with the other, gave him a shove in the chest, sending him sprawling back into the river. Instead of, you know, saying that he was here to recruit the friar on that digressive little marriage caper, Robin leapt up, sword in hand, saying he would carve the friar to pieces. The friar did two things. First, he lifted his robe to reveal that he was wearing a sheet of chainmail. Somehow Robin didn't notice that and all of his soft feeling around down there. Second, the friar rolled up his sleeves and quite literally flexed on young Robin with muscles that, quote, stood out like humps on an aged tree. Robin charged. To the outlaw's credit, he didn't immediately lose to the friar. In fact, after nearly an hour, both men were panting and taking a break from the fight. Robin raised a hand. Could he blow his horn? Would the friar mind that? The former clergyman shook his head. Not if Robin didn't mind if he blew his whistle. Robin shrugged. Fair enough. Robin blew his horn, and in seconds, the pair was surrounded by Little John, Arthur Bland, Will Scarlet, and Alan Adale. Robin smirked. And then the friar blew his whistle. Instantaneously, each man was pulled down by one of the friar's trained hounds. Four in all, one for each of them. Robin was left alone, again, with the friar. But the friar was distracted, looking at one of Robin's men. Will? Young Will Gamwell? The friar said, before making a clicking sound with his mouth. The hounds relaxed. Will was drawing his sword and was about to stab the dog when he heard the voice. Wait, Friar Tuck? The two embraced. Tuck had once traveled to Will's father's house, and the two had become friends. Will learned about what led Tuck to the wilderness. The friar shouldn't worry about why Will Gamwell was now going by Will Scarlet and living with outlaws. He explained the whole wedding caper, and in minutes, Friar Tuck was packed. He was happy to help out Will in any way he could. So, you two know each other? Robin asked. Yep, Tuck replied. And this story was pretty much pointless because all it took was recognizing Will? Also, yep, Tuck replied. Robin sighed. All right, let's get going. The day had come when fair Ellen was to be married, and Robin swore that Alan would, quote, eat out of the platter that had been filled for Sir Stephen of Trent, which, okay. Robin gripped his harp as he watched Friar Tuck talk his way inside the church. The guy drank a few pints of ale on the way to the church, but Robin had to hand it to him. He could talk. Robin turned to little John. He had it, right? John looked anxiously at the bag of 200 gold coins. While they were out recruiting Tuck, the rest of the band had been working, solving their cash flow problem, until Robin returned and took the surplus for the caper. Now, he swaggered to the church right behind a bishop and a priest. When he entered the church, he overheard the bishop and the priest talking about women and debauchery in a way that was over the top even for a murderous outlaw. And the pair stopped him. Who did he think he was and why was he here? Robin said that he was a harpist. He played so well that, when he was done, the bride would actually love her husband. 
The bishop said that they needed that. Sir Stephen was very old, and he was a friend of the bishop. And Ellen, she wasn't thrilled about marrying a guy who could be her grandpa. If the harpist could get her to love him, then the bishop would give him anything. If not, the harpist would be whipped for his lies and his saucy tongue. Robin nodded. Cool, cool, fair. Friar Tuck reclined in the pews, and the clergyman welcomed Sir Stephen and his six armed friends into the church. Tuck and Robin exchanged a glance. Next up was the father and the bride, and yeah, despite Alan's creepy story, the bride looked like a drooping flower. The beautiful 18-year-old wasn't thrilled about marrying old Sir Steve. When the nuptials began, Robin did not wait for the speak now section, but instead stood and started laying into the elderly knight, saying that he wasn't the woman's true love. With that cue, little John and Will rushed into the church, swords drawn, to stand at Robin's side. Alan himself then darkened the doorway, with 18 of Robin's men there, bows drawn and aimed into the church. Stephen reached for his own sword, but because he was getting married, he did not have it. He stepped down from the altar. He said he loved Ellen, but he wouldn't marry her now even if he would be made the king of England. If she chose a beggarly minstrel over him, then he accepted that. And this was absolutely his magnanimous response to true love and not because he was unarmed with 19 bows trained on him. So, Sir Stephen exited the church with his armed buddies. The bishop decided to follow suit, but was stopped by that saucy harpist, whom he had threatened with a whipping. At the end of the day, Robin and Little John negotiated the hand of Ellen with Ellen's father, using every one of those 200 gold coins. And yeah, it's presented as true love, but also Ellen has no lines in the scene, so what could be true love finding a way could also be a rich noble selling his daughter to outlaws. The sum was more than made up by the bishop's helpful donation to the new couple, and he and the priest ran from the church, stripped of everything of value. Robin called out that they were always welcome in Sherwood for a feast. Ellen and Alan were married by Friar Tuck. Let's assume she wanted to. The story says Alan was dizzy with happiness, but doesn't really say anything about Ellen. On the way back, Robin said that they could use a minstrel, so Alan and Ellen were invited to join the gang. Friar Tuck stopped Robin. He said that Robin and his band led a merry life but it might be better for their souls to have a good stout chaplain. Robin narrowed his eyes. Yeah, their, their souls. It was the free booze, wasn't it? Friar Tuck shrugged. Eh, didn't hurt. Robin smiled. Sure, welcome to the family. When they made it back to their hideout in Sherwood, they had a wedding reception unlike any that had ever been seen, and Robin felt like the family he had assembled in the forest, after his own had been destroyed, was now complete save for Marion, who was still a mole in the sheriff's service. He prayed she was safe. When they all woke up the next morning, to a very bright sun, Robin was being nudged awake by an armored foot. He reached for a sword that wasn't there, but the voice of the men who blocked said bright sun said that he shouldn't worry. They weren't from the sheriff. They were from the queen, and she needed Robin's help. Robin cocked an eyebrow. Wait, how did he know the queen? That's it for this week. 
But don't fret, because 2020 is the year of Robin Hood on this podcast. My goal is to be finished with the Robin Hood stories, with a compelling and complete narrative by the end of the year. It'll be easier for you all to follow, it'll be easier for me to write, and it'll be fun. So keep a lookout for more Robin Hood episodes coming your way. Next week, we're catching back up with our old friend Scheherazade, as she continues her stories to the king who's going to kill her if she ever stops, when we revisit the tales from 1001 Nights. If you'd like to support the show and get some cool stuff, we've completely redone and restocked the Myths and Legends store. We now have the much-requested Rules of Myths and Legends t-shirts, as well as new colors for the other ones, too. We also have some very awesome Baba Yaga, Buttercat, and Clurrycon stickers, illustrated by Ben Rowberry. Please check it out. You can go to mythpodcast.com store or follow the link in the show notes. The creature this time is the Rumptifusel from North America. In the 1800s, when buff, manly lumberjacks were cutting down trees, we all knew what they were looking for. Fashionable mink coats. So how happy were they when, looking down at the tree they were about to cut, they found a mink coat wrapped around it? I mean, they might be roughing it, but that didn't mean they couldn't look good while doing it. With visions of David Putty from Seinfeld dancing in their heads, they would reach for the mink coat. And, surprise, it wasn't a fashionable mink coat discarded around a tree in the Minnesota wilderness, but the rumptifusel. You can't really blame lumberjacks either, because the rumptifusel looks like a horrifying science experiment, where someone crosses a manta ray with a fur coat. On the top, it's just flat, luxurious fur, but on the bottom, it's all teeth and suckers. It will lie in wait for someone to pick it up and put it on, and when they do, it will suck the flesh off of them down to their bones. And, I mean, that's about it. Really easy way of avoiding this one. Don't go looking for free fur coats in the forest. And if you do notice that the lining of your new found coat is full of suckers and, you know, alive, maybe don't put it on. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.